0: Northern Rivers Food and Southern Cross University present Business Bites. This podcast series discusses, evaluates and explores all the factors that contribute towards making a successful business. I'm Angela Coturn's host of Business Bytes, and in each episode, I'll bring you wisdom and insights from forward-thinking academics and leading industry experts about what really helps a business stay relevant and thrive. In this episode, we're looking at the challenges presented by climate change. A global issue that we're going to explore from a local perspective. Let's talk about how local farmers can embrace the push to become carbon neutral and explore ways to be part of this paradigm shift. To help us understand some of the science around climate change, our first guest is Dr. Lucas Van Zwieten, Principal Research Scientist with the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries and Adjunct Professor at Southern Cross University. Hello and welcome, Lucas. Hi, Angela. How are you? I'm very well. So I suppose the common view is that to successfully tackle climate change, um, it isn't enough to simply cut carbon emissions. We really need to find ways to remove greenhouse gases from the air. Is that right?
1: There are four strategies that we need to adopt. The first one is reducing emissions, and the second strategy is sequestering more carbon. So, whatever carbon is already in the atmosphere, we need to try and secure more of that into terrestrial systems. We need to implement existing technologies, and we need to do that more broadly as well as continuing to research and drive innovation to develop new techniques to better sequester carbon and also to reduce emissions.
0: Mm-hmm. So obviously the, the main concentration is on reducing emissions. That's the kind of uh, global push, isn't it? Can you explain what, sequestrian, sorry, what sequestering carbon actually is? Yeah,
1: so carbon in the atmosphere is, as a gas, carbon dioxide. And what we're trying to do is to utilise natural processes such as photosynthesis, where plants will take up carbon dioxide and turn them into more complex forms of carbon, like carbohydrates and sugars and organic acids, and store those products now in soil as soil organic carbon. And we know that uh, there are significant opportunities for storage of more carbon in soil.
0: Mm. I mean, I've got this ridiculous vision that you just dig a big hole and somehow or other bury carbon. Is that what happens?
1: Look, that is a a certain possibility with some forms of carbon. Um, But so let's put it, we're putting it into perspective. Globally, soils store about 1,500 billion tonnes of carbon. And since agriculture started to become more intensified, there are estimates that around about 150 billion tonnes of carbon have been released as carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And most of that happens through microbial processes. So essentially, bacteria and fungi in soil will utilise that carbon that's in soil, like you and I would eat a piece of bread, for example, or a piece of fruit. And they utilise that for energy, and they respire carbon dioxide. And that then goes back into the atmosphere. And then the cycle is that that carbon dioxide can be recaptured through photosynthesis, through plants and then uh, brought back into the soil. What we're trying to do is to modify the process, to optimise the process, so that we can store more carbon in soil than what's being released.
0: Mm -hmm. I understand. I remember, um, I don't know, quite a while ago now, there was a global emergency because there was this big hole in the ozone layer which was blamed on the use of CFCs, I think a propellant in our aerosol cans. And suddenly um, action was taken and uh, I don't know if the ozone layer, <laughs> the, the hole in the ozone layer has, has closed over or at least been reduced. Yep. So, so the
1: chlorofluorocarbons have, were traditionally used as uh, refrigerants and as insulators in uh, electrical uh, conductors, for example. And uh, the the principal mechanism of, of lowering the concentration of CFCs in the atmosphere is through not putting them there anymore. So mm. there's been a very significant global effort in lowering the amount of CFCs going into the atmosphere, and they do break down over time. And uh, yeah, the CFCs, reducing their, their concentration in the atmosphere has certainly resulted in the ozone returning to some extent. And uh, and also uh, mitigating some of the climate change impacts that they would otherwise have. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, it's a similar global effort to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide now in the atmosphere. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Look, the, the majority of com- countries have signed up to the Paris Agreement, which uh, which essentially is asking for a, 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 to maintain global warming to two degrees. So after after that. Um, the, the the climate scientists are predicting uh, catastrophic change. Yeah. So if we can keep it to two degrees, according to the Paris Agreement, life can continue you know, relatively as we know it today. And uh, and most countries you know, are looking at opportunities for again reducing emissions, but also to sequester more carbon through a range of different technologies
0: hmm So I understand, Lucas, your area of expertise is, is uh, how what happens in the soil beneath our feet can relate to greenhouse gas emissions. Can you tell us a little about the work that you're doing?
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. So there's work through uh, Southern Cross University and New South Wales DPI and some of that work through soil c- CRC funding. That's a cooperative research centre for high performance soils. We're looking at opportunities to better store carbon in soil. So I guess uh, from a farmer's perspective, you know... Because you are a farmer, by the way. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, I am a farmer. But, you know, there there are more reasons to store carbon in soil than just for climate change mitigation. You know, we understand that carbon in soil is a very, very good thing. It drives a lot of processes that allow the soil to be more productive. So to grow better crops, to be more resilient, the soils can become more resilient to climate change. Um, that can continue to function longer when going into drought so there are lots of reasons why soils should have more carbon in them and why there's a strong effort in promoting technologies that allow soils to build up carbon mm-hmm. and yeah we're, we're working on a range of technologies from um, using uh, crop species diversification for example so you know we, we kind of understand collectively that, you know, carbon ain't carbon. You know, there are all sorts of different forms of carbon and there are high quality carbon. So for example, if you utilise carbon from legumes as opposed to cereals, we know that those carbons are more complex, they contain more nitrogen, and they're more likely to end up in that stable carbon pool being protected through aggregates and microbial action in soil. Whereas carbon, that is high carbon, low nitrogen, it's got less protein content, for, for example. example. Yeah, um, cereal stubble, oats, oats. Yeah, um, it, it it tends to break down more quickly, and it tends to return more of that carbon as CO2 back into the atmosphere. So again, through this diversification of um, pasture species, through intercropping and cover cropping, some of that work, we're showing that uh, you know utilizing um, utilizing plants and plant diversification can definitely increase carbon content. And then also that leads to improved resilience of the soil system to stresses, as I mentioned before, to climate change, to drought, to flooding even. So yeah, we're there, there's some great work in that area. Mm-hmm. And some of the other key technologies that we're working on are around biochar. So biochar is essentially the, the pyrolysis of any biomass, everything from... Sorry, the pyrolysis, the burning? Yeah, so it's actually not exactly burning, so it's heating in the absence of, mm-hmm. of oxygen. So a pyrolysis process will typically be, uh, an engineered pyrolysis process will typically be heated externally and as a biomass heats, it releases gases like hydrogen, methane, carbon monoxide, which are then utilised for energy, which then heat both heat the process with surplus energy, being available for um, separation of gases and I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but you know, typically it can be utilised for combustion, it can be utilised for generating electricity. But some of the newer, newer opportunities that we're looking for uh, include entering the hydrogen economy. So that uh, we're looking at uh, separating hydrogen from that syngas stream, and uh, it's a very high-value gas, which can then be used for, as a transport fuel, which can be used as a platform chemical for other manufacturing purposes. So you know the whole... The whole business of of biochar production through pyrolysis is very circular economy. Let's take agricultural wastes, um, any biomass residues. We can turn that into high value gases like hydrogen. We can generate electricity, renewable electricity. We can minimise waste going into landfill, and we can also now utilise that biochar. And that biochar is a very stable form of carbon. It's a bit like charcoal. And uh, there's in the last 10 years, there's been probably 15,000 research papers written on biochar. And the, the evidence is overwhelming that it's a, a, a good amendment for soil, that it stores carbon long term for hundreds to thousands of years, that it improves soil structure, lowers greenhouse gases emissions from soil.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So how does this research, how are the findings, you know, of this research and, and, and your work, Lucas, how does it make its way to, you know, the grassroots to the farmers and the producers?
1: Yeah, I think there's um, you know, a lot of support now from uh, from farmers. So, you know, we go back 15 or 20 years ago, um, the late Tony Walker from Richmond Landcare was an absolute pioneer in you know, the field of biochar and on-farm use of biochar. And, and you know, he was quite responsible for a lot of the work that we're doing you know, still today, including setting up some of the field trials at Wollongbar um, Primary Industries Institute that are amongst, if not the oldest biochar field trials on pasture in the world. And you know, what we've shown in those biochar field trials is that while biochar adds soil carbon, it can also then stimulate plant production Adding further soil carbon in the in in the system, so we're actually stabilising even more carbon in those systems. So we've gone from sort of four and a half percent carbon in these ferrosol soils um, to about six and a half to seven percent through the addition of biochar, mm. and uh, that's a very very significant quantity of carbon sequestered. And I think you know due to some of that work and um, and you know the the promotion of biochar there are opportunities for farmers now to start entering uh, the technology um, through quite simple on-farm biochar production systems. And I'm hoping that in the next couple of years, there'll be some uh, commercial plants in the Northern Rivers producing biochar on a commercial scale. So Mm -hmm. while we can go out and buy it at the moment, I think there's going to be a lot more local manufacture of biochars. Mm -hmm. And what we also need to recognise is that, you know, biochar is not a single product. It's literally an an almost infinite range of possibilities with biochar, depending on what you put in it to make it and how it's made. So we can really start and we're getting a really strong understanding now of tailoring the properties of biochar to the requirements of the soil or what what the purpose is for the biochar. So we're getting a good understanding of that for farmers to get maximum benefit from
0: Mm -hmm. it. Are they interested in it? I mean, how do they come to know about it? How, how are they educated about it?
1: So, the, so there is an industry body called the Australian New Zealand Biochar Industry Group um, that is quite uh, quite strong in promotion of biochar technologies, and you know, they run an annual conference, and yeah, a lot of a lot of farmers actually are engaged in in some of that biochar research and deployment.
0: Mm-hmm. Here on the Northern Rivers, are you aware of farmers who are, who are, who are using it?
1: There are some, uh, some, some key farmers in the Northern Rivers that are implementing both pyrolysis units, very highly engineered pyrolysis units, right through to on-farm biochar manufacture. And I think a lot, of the, a lot of the farmer-driven work actually originated in the Northern Rivers of New South Wales. So yeah, there's a lot of activity here.
0: Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And so you talked about them buying it. Is it expensive?
1: So at the moment, yeah, I think demand outstrips supply and I think due to that it's probably more expensive than what, what it will be in five years' time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what we really need to do is drive down the price of biochar to increase adoption and uh, and the widespread adoption of that uh, technology.
0: Mm-hmm. Lucas, you mentioned um, Richmond... Uh, Richmond Valley Landcare earlier. Mm. Can you tell us a little about the field trials that have been done with the sugar cane and the macadamias and the various mixed crops?
1: Yeah, we've had, um, so certainly when we were first starting to trial the use of biochar, we were unsure about which biochar properties will benefit the soil the most. So a lot of that early work was around understanding. properties of the biochar. So if we're making biochar from macadamia shell, how does that compare to biochar made from poultry litter, for example, Mm -hmm. or even from animal carcasses? So yeah, a lot of that early work was around understanding the pyrolysis process and how that then influenced the the, the type of biochar that you get. So for example, what we're now working on are biochars that are are phosphorus fertilisers. So rather than uh, adding single superphosphate or triple superphosphate into agricultural soil. We're actually delivering products using biochar as a carrier for phosphorus. And we've had some amazing results in some field trials in South Australia, Mm -hmm. where um, in these very highly alkaline um, calcareous soils, um, phosphorus fertilisers are challenging because as soon as they solubilize into the soil, they react with the calcium that's present in the carbonate and it ties up the phosphorus, so it's not plant available. Mm -hmm. So we're utilising the biochar now as a carrier for that uh, phosphorus fertiliser, and it acts as a slow release. And what we're doing now is we're leaching out very slowly out of the biochar, the phosphorus fertiliser, and it's kind of matching the plant demand. So as a plant needs the fertiliser, the the biochar is releasing it. So we're getting a good understanding of new methods and innovation into driving um, novel products based on, on biochars.
0: Lucas, what's the difference
1: between compost and biochar? Look, there's a huge difference. So compost is um, thermally treated through microbial processes. So you get a, a pile of organic material. It heats up. And it heats up naturally through microbial action. And it will reach temperatures of maybe 70 or 80 degrees. And a lot of the labile carbon components in it, you know, the more simple celluloses and sugars, Break down, and what you're left with are more complex um, structures of carbon. Um, while that carbon in in compost is more stable than the original um, biomass, it's not going to be as stable as a biochar carbon. So compost carbon in the soil will last, you know, maybe one to ten years, whereas biochar carbon will last in soil hundred to a thousand years. Is that right? But they you know, they they, ha- they do serve different purposes. So um, you know, one of the benefits of compost, of course, is that it cycles nutrients. So the main one being nitrogen. So as compost breaks down in the soil, it releases nitrogen, and it's a great way to better match plant demand for nitrogen than adding um, chemical fertilizers. So with a chemical fertilizer, for example, all of that all of that fertilizer is available upfront, and uh, if the plants don't need it at that time that fertiliser can then be leached through the soil or lost as a gaseous emission. Whereas if you've got uh, fertiliser as soil carbon or as compost, that soil carbon or compost will break down, releasing that fertiliser slowly to meet plant demand. So, yeah, there are some fundamental differences. But uh, what we're really trying to do is optimise the process, optimise those soil chemical, biological and physical processes to capture as much carbon as possible, to lower our losses of fertilizer, and to optimize plant production.
0: Mm-hmm. In this episode of Business Bites, we're looking at how the Northern Rivers meat industry, so our local graziers and dairy farmers too, can embrace the push to become carbon neutral. What suggestions or advice would you give to our listeners um, as to how they can implement some of the principles and concepts that um, that you've been talking about?
1: Yeah, so I think the key one is just to optimise pasture production. So you know, the more pasture you can grow. The more carbon that you can store in in the soil, and uh, and as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, you know if we can diversify that pasture as well, get legumes into the mix, um, have multi species pastures, I think the opportunities for increasing carbon content and making that pasture more resilient um, you know, will will benefit both productivity as well as a soil carbon sequestration. That would be my first you know, tip that you know, every farmer can go, go and do now. Certainly, avoid bare earth. You know, we really need to, to, to manage grazing that you know, minimises um, any bare earth. And you know, that's got productivity consequences as well as consequences for soil carbon. So if we start losing ground cover some of that soil is then prone to erosion, wind erosion, water erosion. Mm. You're losing carbon in those processes. You're breaking down soil structure. You're releasing more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. You're making fertilizer use efficiency a lot lower. Um, so there are a whole heap of bad things that happen through over overstocking and overgrazing. Um, and then the opportunities are you know, where, where those systems have been overgrazed. You know, we can start looking at Newer systems like regenerative farming, for example, that that are essentially based on um, controlled grazing, um, you know, where where those sites are only grazed, uh, you know, maybe a few times a year, and uh, and we optimise plant productivity. So again, those farming systems really are are driving good farming practices through optimising plant growth, plant species diversification, and minimising that uh, that loss of soil.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, there seems to be a lot of focus on the methane production by cows. Is that, as, is that a threat to to global warming?
1: Yeah, well, methane is also a greenhouse gas, and it's around twenty three to thirty times more potent than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. And you know, there is a lot of um, uh, a lot of effort put in in research in particular, into lowering uh, greenhouse gas emissions through um, you know, the cattle burping methane. It includes um, genetic breeding of cattle. Uh, it includes feed additives um, that that lower methane emissions. So uh, Meat and Livestock Australia have got a, a, a carbon neutral by 2030 mission. And uh, and I think there's, a, a, as I've mentioned, a lot of effort being put into uh, lowering methane emissions from those systems. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, if we... Can manage pasture to sequester more carbon. We're doing two things. You know, we're lowering the emissions to start with, and we're also now storing more carbon. So we really need to have that that mix of 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 um, processes to to reach our carbon neutral
0: targets. Mm. And so, Lucas, what um, how can our local Northern Rivers farmers uh, be involved in the work of Southern Cross University or the Department of Primary Industries, or both?
1: yeah so I guess some of the key opportunities are to keep you know keep keep working with your local grower groups, with your cooperatives, and understand better you know what the work is happening or what work is happening at Southern Cross University and New South Wales DPI, and uh, there are certainly opportunities to become involved in some some trial work as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And so what about the future for you, Lucas? What future directions um, will your research be taking you? So I'm very much looking forward at, uh, at some opportunities
1: at uh, Wollongbar DPI with Southern Cross University to implement some very high-end, very uh, the latest engineering around pyrolysis technologies where we can generate hydrogen, where we can look at utilising hydrogen on-farm as a tractor fuel, um, where where our car fleet can run on hydrogen, where all of our research station electricity is generated on-farm, and where some of our nitrogen fertilisers are also generated on farm, and then utilising biochar to store and improve soil health and soil carbon. So there's a lot of very exciting opportunities there. And of course, work within Southern Cross University and the Soil CRC uh, is driving a better understanding of the role of carbon in understanding resilience of the system and how soil carbon drives both productivity, um, carbon sequestration, and resilience of those systems to uh, perturbations such as from climate change. Mm
0: Wow. It's a whole new world. Thank you, Angela. (laughs) Thanks, Lucas. Now we're joined by Kerry and Paul Wilson, co-owners of Nimbin Valley Dairy, one of the region's most renowned food businesses. With a farm full of cows and goats, Kerry and Paul take the sustainability of their dairy very seriously. And who better to join us today to talk about being part of the carbon neutral paradigm shift. Welcome to you both.
2: Thank you, Angela. Right. Well.
0: Lovely to have you here. So tell us a little about your background. You're both fifth generation farmers, is that right?
2: Correct. We're both fifth generation dairy farmers. And somewhere along the line, about 20 years ago, we we got together and we decided um, we have done various other things in our in our careers, but both independently um both. Oh. Came back dairy farming in our thirties for some godforsaken reason. (laughs) (laughs) It's that that pull, pull back to the farm, or back to the land actually, and um, um, we didn't want to continue on the path of the standard commercial dairy farm. Okay, so we we wanted to do something different. Um, So we ended up in Nimbin, on the side of a hill in a Run down dairy farm um, with a view to do to um, to continue our future um, value adding to our own milk mm-hmm. so hence we've gone slowly down the path of of bringing together a cow cow herd and a goat herd and making a range of of goat and cow cheeses
3: mm-hmm. thanks to
2: all Paul's newly acquired cheesemaker skills over the last twenty years.
0: Um, That's not really newly acquired. He's obviously been working on it a yes. while. Where did you New learn acquired. how to make how to make cheese, Paul?
3: Um, in I won a um, Dairy Australia scholarship in two thousand
0: and seven. Oh, sorry, uh, a dairy
3: Dairy Australia cheesemaking scholarship. Oh, okay. Can you believe there's one?
0: No, but I'm <laughs> and, thrilled to um, hear it.
3: And. Um, yeah, so I I studied cheese making with Dairy Australia for 12 months on and off. And then, um, foolishly, at the end of that, I thought I'd be able to make cheese. So <laughs> <laughs> I went making cheese. But coincidentally, my grandfather was actually a cheese maker at Noon.
0: Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you have such history on the, on the land. How would you say farming and dairying has changed over the generations? What what can you remember when you were youngsters, and and um, and what you do now that's different?
3: Yeah, okay. Um, well, you and us and you are probably the same vintage, so you would probably remember how farming used to be before it changed, and now it's sort of changing back. So. <laughs> um I think a little bit of history kind of helps understand what happened because after the Second World War, there was a lot of new technology around, a lot of understanding of science and blah, 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 and also a lot of extra people in the world we had to feed. And all of a sudden, um, we went from a system of a small family farm with a few cows and rotational grazing and cropping and mixed farming to the highly specialised industrial farms over a period of 20 or 30 years, and then with all the problems that brought, and now we're kind of shifting back, aren't we, back towards some other, sim- well, if not necessarily simpler, but um, more comprehensive system. Hmm. We've gone up from a farm that
2: could possibly run 150 to 200 dairy cows on a commercial, fully commercial um system that was using lots of chemicals and urea and superphosphate and things like that to a system where we have now um 80 cows and 80 goats on a rotational system that is not producing milk to sell to say normal for example we are then value adding our milk and then we are actually marketing our own product from that milk so we're we've gone back to a, a paddock-to-plate system um, um, and lesser numbers, lesser number of animals on the farm and lesser pressure on the farm.
0: Mm. Do you take any steps to try and be carbon neutral on your farm?
3: When we um, first started our valuating journey, we did a lot of tree planting and um there was nothing organised as such, but um, it was just off our own back, we decided we should plant some trees, any areas of too steep for grazing and, and whatnot. And hopefully that was going to offset some of the carbon emissions. But just recently we've become a bit more serious about it and started measuring soil carbon. And so we can track that over time to see whether we're adding or, or um, taking away carbon out of the out of the system.
0: Mm. I mean, so it's possible, isn't it, for the meat and livestock industry to become carbon neutral? Is it something that you think, you know, old school farmers and people in the industry support?
3: Uh, Yeah, I think so. There's a Mm -hmm. little bit of a um, story out there that farmers are environmental vandals, and I don't buy into that. Basically, they respond to price, price signals they receive from the marketplace. and if people want to pay a dollar a litre of milk, then they're going to get cheap milk that damages the environment. But if they're happy to pay a bit more, then that money can be used to, to manage the farm and the, the environment a bit better. So mm. I think um, farmers want to do whatever's good for their animals and their land. So, yeah, they're, mm. they're interested in it. Yeah.
2: Farmers certainly, Angela, have that connection and you would know going to farmers' markets in at Mullen that farmers have, you know, those the farmers who are at those markets have that connection with their animals. They have that connection with their soil, um, um, and and that is not necessarily reflected in the mainstream commercial farms. There's kind of that little shift, the difference there between those farmers. Um, but hopefully um, the rise of of the interest in that connection, it is there with the commercial farmers, but they are a bit, um, not necessarily more savvy, but they, they're happy to use all the commercial um, chemicals and things like that to boost production. Mm.
0: So, is it fair which, to say that... It can
2: it, be a detriment to the environment.
0: Is, is it fair to say that sustainability is at the core of... You know what you do on the Nimbin Valley Dairy. Yeah,
3: oh, for certainly. sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, t- tell us some of the ways that you try to strive to be a sustainable business.
3: Um, I guess the first thing is that we've stopped using chemical mm. fertilisers. We've been for ten years, yeah. and um, so we're off that chemical treadmill. Um, we're using compost to add nutrition back to the soil and help the soil. Um, recover. And the other thing is that we've joined the, um, it's called a RAMP program, so um, uh, the Regenerative Agriculture Mentoring Program. So mm-hmm. there's a uh, half a dozen of farmers in the Northern Rivers District have got together, and we have a mentor who's actually based in um, Albury, well, David Hardwick is his name, and he's helping us um, create a Sustainable biologically driven farming system, so a regenerative agriculture farming system, and that's that'll that underpins everything we do on the farm. Mm-hmm. And we've just started that program, and um, he'll hopefully guide us through the changeover period because, mm. because probably what we've done in the past, Angel, is what
2: our guts tell us we want to do. You know, moving to Nimbin, we wanted to to create a farm that was um, environmentally aware. And I suppose it never had a name, but now under this RAMP program, we have more of a, a, um, we are under an umbrella of a regen farm. So, you know, soon, you know, down the track, once we get all our systems in place, we will be a regenerative farm example.
0: Mm-hmm. What does that actually mean, Kerry, to be an example of a regenerative farm?
2: Well, like Paul said, we will be using um, rotational grazing, which is something that all farmers have been using for years. Anyway. All dairy farmers. All dairy farmers have been using it for years. But now it's a bit more, I um, don't oh, know, the word's a bit more sexy now by saying you're rotational grazing. Um, we'll go down the path of, um, of making our own compost. And putting that on the farm mm-hmm. and that is um directly um in place of any chemical sprays and fertilizers okay and to encourage um our soil um ecological
3: system can um, i um can i just explain what it isn't, isn't. Mm-hmm. and that might help understand what we're trying to do because regen ag is one of those terms that you're going to hear a lot of people banging mm. on about especially when the marketers and the big supermarkets get hold of it and they're probably going to debase it to a certain degree but um if i can use the example of phosphorus all plants need phosphorus to grow and for the last 50 years to do that to achieve that we've put on superphosphate fertiliser onto the soil but phosphorus is a tricky little thing because it gets onto the soil and gets locks up with the clay, and and the plants can't get it. The only way the plants get it is by the roots growing over towards the clay and accidentally locking onto a, a little bit of phosphorus, and then it can take it up through its roots. And that's that's the gist of chemical farming. You just the soil is just something for the plants to stand in, and you throw a whole heap of chemical fertilizers at them, and some of them stick. Mm-hmm. So, but what we're trying to do what regenerative ag is trying to do <coughs> is understand that the soil is actually a living organic system it, it it has a role to play in itself it's just not something to hold the plants up so what we now understand is that uh phosphorus plays an important role through fungi and and other um organisms in the soil so and there's a little trade-off going on because these fungi grow through the soil and they collect phosphorus and they transport it to the plant roots and the plant gives them sugar in return. So there's this little system going on that we've been ignoring for the last 50 years as farmers. Mm-hmm. And What we're now trying to do with Regen Ag is to create a, an environment in the soil where these types of systems are encouraged to do their job naturally. So mm. that's, it's not just about phosphorus, so that's one example.
0: Yeah. Have you heard about biochar?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and the good thing about biochar is that it's it's um, a substance that gives a framework for all these little fungus, fungi and mycorrhizae to grow on. So it's, it it helps them do their stuff. So all those complex um, interactions that are, are vital for soil health. We are going to now try and encourage them to do their thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Fantastic! And so, are there other 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 practical ways that you try to reduce your environmental impact?
3: Um, I guess
0: Packaging. The, sorry. Packaging. Packaging.
3: For yeah, instance, yeah. so in the factory. Um, Again, it's a it's a slow process, but um, the 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 biggest thing is the use of um, biodegradable plastics that are now coming on the market. So your vacuum packing um, uh, pouches that we buy, they're now um, biodegradable or compostable. Mm-hmm. They take six months to break down, but nonetheless, they it's not hanging around for a thousand years. Yeah. Um, so that's <laughs> that's one <what laughs> thing. <they laughs> The other thing is um, solar. We're working with um, Rainbow Power Company at the moment. Mm-hmm. To um, everything in the factory will be solar powered within twelve months. So, you know, just Monitoring our power usage at the moment. They'll um, design a system up, and um, that'll replace um, power that we buy in. So, the good thing about our business is that it's heating and cooling milk and cooling cheese. All of which happens in the heat of the day when the sun's shining. So, um, it's a good fit. Solar is a good fit for our type of business.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier about the ramp program. Is that uh, that's uh, the mentoring program, right? And I think it's auspiced by um, Southern Cross University. Yeah, correct. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. And are other farmers in this area part of that program too?
3: Yeah, there's six suburbs, I think. It's yeah, important. there's six. Mm. There's a couple of Mac farmers, tea tree grower, um, uh, another small scale <clears throat> farmer for Coffee Camp, a whole range of different people. Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I understand you've just embarked on a new project for the farm, a soil carbon management program that you're pursuing in collaboration with Southern Cross University. Tell us what that involves. It's
3: um, the pilot soil. Um, program, it's a federally gov- federal government funded program, I think, and it's through Southern Cross, and um, we work with some uh, soil scientists who will come out and take soil samples mm-hmm. at various depths, and they are logged by GPS. So every couple of months they can come back um, to the exact same spot, or even down the track, they can you know, several years down the track they can come back. And we have actually had to sign up, sign a disclosure agreement that um, they can have access to that information forever. Um, and it's just a system to allow soil scientists to track what's happening it's with soil carbon on our farm and a different farms throughout the whole country. And it's just a way of coming to understand if our soil carbon is increasing, staying the same, decreasing what not it provide some baseline information it's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that you think you should have been done 30 years ago um and it wasn't but it's happening now mm-hmm. and um it allow us to assess our our farming techniques and any regen farming practices we put in place um, be able to say in five years time oh yeah, look you saw carbon increasing so whatever you're doing it's it's working or if it's decreasing, you know, it's not enough. Or, yeah, so that's the basis of the
0: program. Yeah, that sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Um, yeah. And so you're operating a large and growing business but you're still very much in close contact with your consumers. What expectations do you reckon your customers have around the role of producers like Nimbin Valley um, to take steps to be carbon neutral? Is it a selling point?
2: It's yes, in the future, I think it is there's no doubt about that, so um, um, they will have that expectation that we are doing something um, and we actually want to take our customers on our journey and we want to start telling them through our uh, our own Facebook about um, our journey towards carbon neutral achieving carbon neutral, hopefully within five years, so we actually want to. Kind of share a little bit of the journey and a little bit of what we the practical things that we will be doing to achieve that because it's you know it's nice to say you know yes we're going to do this in five years time but how are we actually going to do it and what is the process Mm. and 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 like you said we have an incredibly close close contact with our customers I mean we have. Our customers are so close to us, Angela. They're so happy to text me at eleven o'clock or in the, in the <laughs> night as a chef to say, "Can I have some white cow delivered on Tuesday?" <laughs> um, yeah. So, and, and as as annoying as that can be, I kind of think, well, that's actually not that bad because we've actually. We've built these relationships from the ground up. We started at the farmer's markets. We're still at the farmer's markets. Our business is still at the farmer's markets. And it's part of our core business but that we have maintained as well as added on to that business.
3: Mm. And that's, and so that's our, where we yeah. get our direct feedback
2: yeah. from the
3: farmer's markets. Too. Yeah.
2: You know that that batch wasn't very good, Kerry. Can you go and tell Paul that, that cheese wasn't creamy enough? <laughs> Angela said it didn't go gooey enough for.
0: Her. Yeah, Angela said thanks for the heart attack. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not joking. And so, do you reckon? Do you reckon farmers can be at the forefront of of change, of um, change for the better?
3: Yes, I think they can, but don't. Harking back to what I said before, farmers get a bit of a bad rap about some environmental management, environmental steward type things because they do exactly what they're paid to do, you know. And the way I think about it is if, say if you're getting a dollar a litre for your milk, um, roughly the cows are going to eat 60 cents of that straight away. That's what it costs to feed them. And then the bank's going to take another Ten or fifteen cents, because everyone's got a mortgage, and then you've um, got a few animal health, like all the, the the things to keep the animal healthy. So they're going to take more, and then you've got kids that have got to be educated and fed. So they're going to take more and more and more. And all of a sudden, what's left to look after the environment? You know, there's no premium in there at the moment for environmental stewardship, and how, how does that, our current financial system has no way of transferring that requirement back to the farmer so it can be plundered. Like It takes money to fence off creek banks to make sure that the rivers are looked after. It takes money to plant trees to make sure that you're um, um, you know, offsetting some carbon emissions. All of those things are expensive. And there's no way of that money going back. And especially when you have a supermarket system that bangs on constantly about how cheap our products are. Like, they're cheap because your environment's getting screwed. The bank's not going to miss out on its bit. The animals have got to live. Um, you know, where where is the, the premium in there to look after the, 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 the environment? That's, that's a sad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, farmers can be at the forefront of environmental stewardship. They try to be as much as they can, given the system that they're in. Given working. the system they're in, yeah.
0: Um, our previous guest, who, who who's a scientist actually, um, Lucas van Zwieten, uh, he mentioned some of the innovations being, uh, you know, pursued in how cattle are managed to lessen their burps and therefore their you know uh, emissions um, oh. em- methane emissions I think things like careful breathing and even seaweed food is this an area that um, that you've been looking into or are interested in
3: we've been reading about it and uh, five years ago we used to add a little bit into their diet
0: of seaweed
3: uh, of seaweed yeah mm-hmm. um, it was quite expensive uh, and we haven't revisited that but that's going to be the answer to methane, controlling methane emissions from cows, I think. So we really do need to explore that more. Again, it'll come down to cost, you know. Mm. Uh, seaweed has to come from somewhere. Um, to, does the community want us to, to have cows with reduced methane emissions? If they do, it has to be paid for. Um, but, yeah, certainly it's very exciting technology. Um Uh, we need to explore that
0: more Yeah, fair enough Um, It's been a delight to talk to you chaps, thank you so very much for, well, your beautiful produce (laughs) and thank you for talking to us on the podcast
2: Thank you, Angela Thanks, Angela
0: This episode of Business Bites explored the global issue of climate change through a local lens. Our featured guests, Dr Lucas Van Zwieten from Southern Cross University and the Department of Primary Industries, and Paul and Kerry Wilson from Nimbin Valley Dairy, helped us understand the issues around climate change and allowed us to explore ways local producers and growers can take steps towards being carbon neutral. The Business Bites podcast series is a collaboration between Southern Cross University and Northern Rivers Food. Southern Cross now offers the new Bachelor of Business and Enterprise at its Lismore campus, and for the March 2023 intake, the university is offering a scholarship worth $5,000 to every student who enrolls. This new degree can help the brightest commercial minds to stay in our region. Perhaps that's you someone in your business, or someone you know. Find out more at scu.edu.au. Northern Rivers Food is the region's not-for-profit, member-based food organisation. Established by people from the paddock to the plate, Northern Rivers Food supports and connects people in the industry, developing skills and opportunities, and celebrates the unique food of our region at every turn. To get involved, visit northernriversfood.org. Business Bites is proudly funded by the New South Wales Government and I hope you'll join us for the next episode. I'm Angela Caternes. Thanks for listening.